Welcome to the podcast of Rogue Valley Christian Church. We hope to be a place that connects you to Jesus, encourages you to grow in your faith, and challenges you to serve the world. If you brought a Bible, you can turn to the book of Luke, chapter 17. As you're doing so, know this. We are just continuing to make our way through the story of Jesus. We have turned our attention towards the cross. We are making our way through this season of preparation where we will end up on Resurrection Sunday celebrating with great joy the reality that Jesus has risen from the dead and we are, of all people, blessed because of it. Amen? So we're going to get there. In the meantime, as we go through the story of Jesus, we're going to have to go through some passages that maybe we wouldn't otherwise do, but we're doing so because it's part of the story. So as Jesus, without a doubt, according to the book of Luke, as Jesus is making his way, he's resolute about going to Jerusalem. We're going to see that in the next four to six weeks or so. Know this, in the next four to six weeks, we're going to cover probably about... 10 days worth of happenings, if not a little more, a little less, in the story. But as we go there, Jesus is getting to Jerusalem. Religious Israel has already dug their heels in about refusing to believe in who he is, yet they're still trying to trap him. And in Luke chapter 17, that's what's going on. It says in verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Now note this. The Pharisees are not giving up on their goal to get rid of Jesus. So, in one way or another, they keep sending representatives to wherever Jesus was to try to entrap him. This time, their attempt centers around the concept of the kingdom of God. Now, I know that for us, sometimes that concept is like, overwhelming, it's big, how does that work, what's it going to look like, so on and so forth. Well, it's kind of like that for them, but they had a different understanding than we do. They looked forward to it, and they hadn't seen it through the cross yet. We look back through the cross and see that we can look forward this way for it. We'll get to that in a minute. In the meantime, religious Israel, they had certain things that they presupposed about the eschatological reality that they were thinking they were in. And when we say eschatological reality, just know this, it's the study of the end times. They had eschatological messianic expectations, just like many people do today. Meaning this, we have to understand where they were coming from. Israel, without a doubt, had expectations about the kingdom of God. You see, it was a concept familiar with them. They believed in the kingdom of God. They saw that it was promised throughout the Old Testament, and so they were looking forward to it. But their expectations or their presuppositions about how it would come about were a little bit off. They believed that it would be a practical, physical uh, uh, overthrowing of their oppressors by God that would allow them to live in political peace from there on out. They believed that it would also come with, with, with positions of prominence and authority for them. It was all self-centered, so to speak, for them. It shouldn't be for us. Remember last week, if you weren't here, I would encourage you to go back on our YouTube channel 
tune into last week's message, or you can listen on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It's on either of those platforms. You can check it out and listen as we cautioned one another about the downward spiral that comes with self-centered living. This is what Israel was doing. So first and foremost, we have to recognize they didn't really care about what Jesus had to say about the kingdom, which is why he doesn't answer them much. For us, we have to understand this concept. We have to understand the kingdom defined as this. God's people in God's place under God's rule. That, just so you know, took me 10 seconds to describe something that's theologically thick with meaning. When the Bible refers to the kingdom, to the Son of Man, to the coming of Jesus, the establishment of God's kingdom, what we're talking about is the once and for all reality of God's people in God's place under God's rule forevermore. This is what they were missing. God's people in God's place under God's rule is all about God. They had turned it into something that was all about them. For us, we need to understand biblically, and you can trace this. I'm going to give you some stuff to go think about, look up, research. Those of you who are lovers of the word, who just love to pull it apart and flip the pages and underline and highlight and do all of those things. The kingdom, as God's people under, in God's place under God's rule, was spoken of in the Old Testament. It was promised in the Old Testament. It's been inaugurated in the coming of Jesus' incarnation. When Jesus came to earth the first time, which we're reading about, talking about, and have been studying for two years now. It was inaugurated with his incarnation. It's exemplified by his ministry. As we read and study the story of Jesus, we get how the characteristics of the kingdom are supposed to function. Loving, forgiving, compassionate, just, merciful, faithful, patient, all of those things ultimately guaranteed by the death of Jesus, guaranteed by his death and resurrection, the kingdom's coming, and then it will be established forevermore at his second coming when he returns. If you're new to Christianity, just know this, throughout Christian history, the church has believed that Jesus came once, he lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended to the Father, and he will come back. The time in between is that now and not yet time where God is desiring that all people would be saved before he comes back and brings justice to the world. Now we're living in that time. The end times, by the way, is confusing and controversial to a lot of people. And just so you know, since we're talking about it, let me give you my expertise. People ask me all the time, as if I'm some sort of eschatological expert. <laughs> and just because you can say the word with enthusiasm does not make you an expert. In fact, if you push me, I will tell you there's one eschatological expert that the world needs. It's not me, and it's not you. It's not that guy or that gal or that person, that cousin, that uncle, that crazy aunt. It's <laughs> or wacky brother-in-law there. It's not any of that. The eschatological expert that we need is God himself. And the eschatological information, that is, the information about the end of all times and the end of the age that we need, the information that we need comes from God. Amen? 
People write books, that's fine. They make movies, that's fine. I don't care. Be entertained. Don't let it distract you from the reality of what God is doing, which we're going to talk about. Not because I think this is what it's about, but because I think this is what Jesus said. So people ask me in my eschatological expertise. I mean, I have gone to college for 27 some years. Some of you know the real story. Because I wasn't real smart enough to get it done in two. Not so good with words. I think in light of everything that we see going on in the world, even during in between services, I had somebody go, you know, there's a lot going on. To which I thought, there's always a lot going on. What a lot are we talking about? There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on in a lot of places. There's a lot going on in a lot of places that you could connect with how God said things are going to unfold. Does that mean that a lot going on in a lot of places is exactly what God had in mind and that's exactly what it is? I don't know. I just know this. There's a lot going on in a lot of places. Are you with me? There's a lot of bad things going on in a lot of places that have been spoken of. Yes? But don't forget, there's a lot of good things going on in places that were spoken of. We know this, according to the prophecies in Jeremiah, that God's going to bring new, breathe new life. He's going to bring a revival of the Spirit into His people at some point during this now-not-yet time period. That's going on. And it's not just going on in this place that the news is talking about and that place that the news is talking about. Those places, like that's going on, yes. It's also going on here and there and everywhere. Anywhere that the people of God wake up in the morning and say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to live for your glory and your honor today. Just know this, revivals come to your house that day. Because somehow in the middle of the night, he revived an awareness within us to live not for ourselves but for him. And in light of everything going on, revival, struggles, wretchedness, all of those things, I'll give you this. Let me give you a prophecy update. I believe today we're closer than we were yesterday. No one's going to sign up for that seminar, are they? But it's true. Now, as it relates to like the dates and the days and the time frames and the telling of the weather, don't forget, because some people will talk to me and they'll say, you know, Jesus said, you know how to tell like if a storm's coming, so should you pay attention to the end of the age? And I said, okay, yes. But when you see the weather and you read the weather and you know that a storm's coming, what do you do? You go get a jacket. I only know one person in my personal life that sees a storm coming and says, okay, let's calculate its length, its time, where it's going to be. I might be looking right here. It's like, let's figure that out. Most of us, when we see a storm coming, we're like, is it going to rain? Yeah, it's going to rain. Let me get my raincoat. Here's the deal. When we look out and we judge the weather, we do so so that it affects the way we live our lives. Yeah? That's the way Jesus is talking about it. So the Pharisees, you're welcome, Dave. So the Pharisees, if you want to know about weather, talk to Dave. So the Pharisees, they come to Jesus and say, hey, when's the kingdom coming? 
Now, Jesus is going to use terms like kingdom. He's going to use son of man. He's going to use uh, the second kind. Like, all of those things are synonymous, just so you know. We're talking about the same thing. So in verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, saying, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Now, here's the interesting thing. Now, some of us are like, see, you're never going to know. That's not actually what he means. Because in other places, he said, watch out and make sure that you're paying attention. Observe what's going on around you. So what's happening? Do, are the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, in conflict one another with one another? And I shouldn't hit my hand so hard. No. We have to understand what they would have meant. When he says to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways it can observe. He's talking about it's not going to happen the way you think you are going to see it happen. That's, it's contextual and it's specific. He's telling them. Your view about the kingdom is wrong, so therefore your expectations about the kingdom isn't going to come and take place the way you think or the way you presuppose that it will. In fact, he goes on, he says, nor will they say, look here, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus is saying, look, don't get confused. It's not here, it's not there, it's not the way you think it's going to happen. It's actually in your midst, in this moment. You see, we know looking back theologically, the kingdom of God is personified by the presence of Jesus. Amen? The kingdom of God is personified by the presence of Jesus. And so he says it's in your midst. Some of you may have a translation that says the kingdom of God is within you. Let me correct that just a little bit. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, you're correcting my Bible. And I would say maybe just a little. Some earlier translations, and just remember, if it's an earlier translation, it doesn't mean that it's better. Earlier translations were based mostly on later archaeological um, discoveries, later in timeline, not in discovery. Some of our later manuscripts are actually a little more accurate because they go and they're based off of uh, documents that we have found that are predating the ones that we used to have. In other words, they're earlier. They are closer to the time. It doesn't make sense that Jesus would say the kingdom of God is within you to a group of Pharisees who didn't believe. That doesn't make theological sense. And so he says it's in your midst. He's talking to them. Now, that's all he says to the Pharisees. Beyond that, it's almost as if they're like, yep, yeah, uh, uh. and in one sense, you can see Jesus going, you don't really care anyway. So he turns in verse 22, and he begins to talk to his disciples. And I love this part that he begins to talk to his disciples, because all along, just so you know, when you read of Jesus silencing his critics, you should never forget, you should see in your mind's eye, a group of disciples behind him going, wait, what? You see what I mean? Because that's what's going on. The disciples are right there with him. And they're watching him literally interact with and debate the religious experts of their day. Remember, the disciples still held the Pharisees and religious Israel. They still held, held them in high theological esteem because they knew a lot. Remember, the disciples were ordinary, unschooled men. They didn't go to the schools of so-and-so rabbi, such-and-such. They went to the fishing hole, <laughs> provided for their family. You know what I'm saying? So the disciples, they see this little tiny interaction about the kingdom, and no doubt they're interested because from their perspective, which was the same as the Pharisees' perspective, they're in the right place. They're standing behind the one that they think is going to bring the kingdom, but they didn't understand that he was the king of the kingdom. I'm getting excited because it's fun. So they're standing there just kind of like, well, wait, what is going on? And so he turns to them. Jesus turns to his disciples. Did you know that the king cares for his people? Um, the king cares for his people. So, verse 22, he says to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. In other words, what he's saying is this. 
Remember, son of man, it's a messianic title all the way back to the book of Daniel. Just look it up, do a deep dive on it. It's enough to know that Jesus is using a term that indicates that he's the Messiah that everybody is waiting for. And he understands that as the Messiah, he's going to usher in the kingdom. He's inaugurating it through his life, death, and resurrection, guaranteeing it to be established forevermore at some point in the future. That's our eschatological view, right? So he says to them, the days are coming. To, he looks at his disciples. He forgets the Pharisees. He looks at the disciples, the ones who have hitched their wagons to him. That's weird because it makes it seem like a horse, but he's not. The ones who have said, I'm going to follow you. The ones who have like wrapped their arms around him. The ones who have said, Lord, I'll do it. Whatever. He looks at them and he says to them, the days are coming when you wish you're going to want to see the Son of Man, but you won't. In other words, the days are coming when you think that I'm, like, I'm going to be, you want me to be here just like I am right now, but I'm not going to be here. Because he was going to give his life as a ransom for many, be buried, raise again on the third day, and then ascend to the right hand of the Father for an extended period of time. I don't know how long that time is. I know the scripture indicates that a thousand years is like a day and a day like a thousand years to God. So from our perspective, it's a long time. From God's may not be. So there's a period of time. It's the church age where we are in this world presenting the gospel to as many as possible because God's desire is that none should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance through belief in Jesus. Like that's the time. And Jesus says, during that time, you're going to wish I was here, but I'm not going to be here. Don't freak out. Like, he lo looks at his disciples who are confused about all of it and like, well, how is this all going to work? Do we get a corner office or not? And he says, no, something else is going on. <laughs> and while you're wondering what's going on, looking for me, just chill out. And it's all going according to plan. So he goes on and he says in verse 23, during those days when you're going to wish that I was here, a lot of people are going to say, look at what he says. And they will say to you, look there or look here. And he says, do not go or follow him. He says, during that time, this time of in between, people are going to go, there he is. No, there he is. Here he is. There he Okay. Are you guys familiar with that happening throughout the last 2,000 years? Happens all the time. Not only are there people going, oh, maybe here. Oh, it could be there. I know it was back then. Right? All that stuff's going on. It has happened. Jesus says, don't be distracted by the speculations of people who may or may not know better. Amen? Instead, you stay focused on me. Instead, maintain a laser-like focus on Jesus. Why? Because he's the eschatological expert. Stay focused. So he continues on, verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. He says to his disciples, look, you don't have to go there or here or there or there based on what these people are speculating because my coming again will be unmistakable. It'll be unmistakable. It'll be noticeable. It'll be known. How many of you were in Brazil just a few days or weeks ago and saw a lightning flash across the sky and hit Christ the Redeemer statue. I call him Brazilian Jesus. Hit him <laughs> on the hand. Have you guys, how many of you guys were there and saw that? Nobody. How many of you seen a picture of it? Some of you. If you Google it, it's actually a fascinating picture. Christ the Redeemer statue. You guys are, you guys are aware of this statue that stands over a cliffside in Brazil? And long, like, I don't know about you, but whenever I see it, I'm like, I just want to go give him a hug. You know what I mean? It's a big statue. It's hard to hug a big statue. But I guess what happens is my heart goes, oh, that's my Lord and my Savior, not the statue, and not just in Brazil, 
but this reality of standing and saying and, and, and inviting the world to come. I love that. Well, however long, just a few days or a few weeks ago, lightning struck and hit, hit, hit the hand of the statue. And a lot of people who weren't there are aware of it. Why? Internet, social media. People took pictures and cast it all around. See, when Jesus said to them, just as lightning flashes from one end of the sky and the other and everybody sees it, they would have been like, well, wait a minute, though. If it's a dark night <clears throat> and the lightning lights up the sky, those who were there at that nighttime, they could see it. But what about the people on the other side of the world where it's daytime and they didn't see it at all? What do you mean? So critics can pick it apart, but we don't have to pick it apart. We know in reality, everything makes its way around the world in about 2.3 seconds now because of technology. Everybody's aware of everything. Now, on one hand, we're like, oh, that's great. On the other hand, it's exhausting, yes? I told first service, <laughs> just put your phone down and go to bed. You know what I mean? Like, whenever your bedtime is, put your phone down two hours beforehand. Don't hold me to this. <laughs> and just go to sleep in peace. Some of the stuff we don't need to see, we're gonna be okay. So Jesus says, look, my second coming is going to be unmistakable. Everybody's going to see it. How would they all see it? Well, we all know how it could be seen easily now because everything is known within a moment whenever it happens all the way around the world. He goes on and he says in verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, at this point, remember, everybody's speculating. Is this the king? Is this the kingdom? What's happening? Is this when the Romans are out of here and we're free once again? Is this what's going on? And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, but don't forget before that day where I establish my kingdom forevermore, before that day, I'm going to be, I'm going to suffer at the hands of humanity. I love the fact that right within this little, by the way, there's more explanation that Jesus gives on the end times. You can go to the book of Matthew and read the Olivet Discourse and study it all out and look at it, come and ask questions, all of those things. It's fantastic. Start putting all of that together. But in this little Lucan passage, right, this is tiny little passage, in the middle of it, Jesus says, but the most important thing is the gospel. Are you with me? The most important thing is the gospel. Because he says, before any of that happens, don't lose sight of what I'm going to do, which, by the way, at this point in his ministry, he's already told his disciples at least twice and most likely three times that he was going to go to Jerusalem. He was going to give his life as a ransom for many and anyone and everyone who would believe in him as he rises again on the third day and ascends to the father. Anybody who believes in what he has done shall not perish, but be saved. He interjects the gospel. Any of our consideration about the future and about the end times, about the eschatological speculation that we're curious about or confused about or terrified of, which, by the way, I'm all three. Are you, are you with me? I think about the future. I'm curious about it. I'm interested in it. And at the same time, I'm terrified. Because I like right now. At least right now, I know what the issues are. And I've figured out how to deal with them to some degree or another. The future? I don't know. But Pastor Darren, three minutes ago, you just said that lightning's going to flash across the sky. It's going to be unmistakable. We can be confident and blah, 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 blah. I know, but it's still terrifying. We should never disconnect the gospel. From eschatology. In fact, the study of the end times should be more about the gospel than about this sign, that sign, or the other. Because Jesus says, don't forget. 
before all that happens, I've told you and I'm telling you again, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die for sinful humanity as the perfect sacrifice provided for the Father, bringing about the opportunity for anyone and everyone based on their belief in me by faith to be made right in God's sight, not on their own merit, but on mine. Like, don't forget that. This is what he tells his disciples. I believe it's what he's encouraging us to do today as well. I think any consideration of the end of the age, the second coming, and the future, it should motivate us spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and practically. We'll get to how that works in a moment, but it should motivate us. And all of those motivations should center around the gospel. Because we live in this time where God wishes that none should perish and neither should we. The reality that he's going to come again and bring justice when he comes should motivate us in the here and now to tell people in word and deed of God's great love. Well, he goes on with the disciples. He says, don't forget, I'm going to suffer. In verse 26, he goes, and just as it was in the day of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until one day, until the day Noah entered the ark and flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on that day when the Son of Man is revealed. So it will be at my second coming, he says. He gives his disciples a little, a little, a little reminder about the book of Genesis, about the flood and about Sodom and Gomorrah. He gives them a little reminder. And if we're not careful, we're going to be distracted by the judgment side of that. We're going to be distracted by looking for some sort of judgmental sign from heaven that wipes out all the wrongdoers that we're sick of in our world. Maybe you're not. Maybe I'm the only jerk in the house. You know what I mean? If we're not careful, we're going to look for fireballs from heaven that plant down and end up taking out that person's house that we're sick of. You know that person who bullied us in middle school? Yeah, get their house, God. You know that person who fired me from my job unnecessarily? Yeah, fireball that place. You know that, that neighbor who has a habit of parking his car crooked in his driveway? Drives me crazy. Get rid of him. Fire, sulfur, take it out. So here's a problem with that mentality. Hopefully you know that I'm just being ridiculous. The problem with that mentality is we've just called down the judgment of God on ourselves because I'm that neighbor who parks his oil-leaking car crooked so it won't make my driveway more of a mess, knowing that my neighbors are like, and he calls himself a preacher. Which they're mistaken on a number of levels. Never do I ever call myself a preacher. I call myself, do you want, are you ready for it? Darren. <laughs> that's the problem with that mentality. I don't believe that that's what Jesus wanted us to pay attention to. I don't believe that he called us to look for the signs in that way. What, I, what he called us to do is to see the sign of culture and recognize the days getting closer. See, the days of Noah and the days of Lot were similar in that the culture was distracted, disinterested, 
and wanted nothing to do with God. They were distracted from God, they were disinterested in God, and they wanted ultimately nothing to do with God. That's what the sign of Noah and Lot was really about. And he says, just as it was in those days, it will be when the Son of Man returns. Did I mention that I think we're probably one day closer than we were yesterday? Did I mention that the reality of his coming, which I believe is one day closer than it was yesterday, and I don't believe that's a cop-out, I believe that's biblical. Did I mention that that should motivate us spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and practically? We'll get there. So Jesus says to them, hey, it's going to be like this. And then he goes on in verse 30 and he says, On that day, let no one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. In other words, he's saying, look, he goes on, he goes, remember, verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will keep it. (sighs) What's he communicating? Is he warning people? You better do this right. I don't think that's what he was doing. I think what he was doing to his disciples is he was revealing to him, to them, that on the day of his return, when he comes back to be present with his people in this world, his presence is more important than any of our possessions. Like his presence is worth letting go of everything in order to hold on to him. So he says, like, if somebody's on the roof, and I don't know about you, but you look at it and you're like, well, who's going to be on the roof? And we're supposed to be going up on our roof? I have a two-story house, so I'm in better shape than most of you single-story people because I'm going to see it faster. I'm also afraid of heights, so I ain't going up there. That's how ridiculous these plans get. Is that what he's talking about? No, what he's talking about is this. Remember, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, it was common to have a flat-roofed home, and they would use the top of their home as a hangout place. It was like an outdoor family room. So he's like, in that day, if you're up on the roof and you're hanging out with your family and you see the Son of Man, his return, you see, don't go, oh my goodness, let me go get my keepsakes really quick. You, are, you, are you with me? And it's partly because we've, go, we've like overamped our possessions, haven't we? And when I say we, I'm going to go ahead and take this one for the team. I've overamped my possessions. I say everything's for sale, but man, it's only for sale so I can buy a new one. Jesus is saying to his disciples, when I return, when I am present once again in that way, when I, the kingdom, and the king of the kingdom, and I bring it in your midst like never before, like you've been waiting for for 2,000 years, when I do that, no possession is as important as my presence. Let go of it all, he says, right? And then he says this, like not only is no possession more important than his presence, but neither is any memory or longing for the good old days. Because he uses the example of Lot's wife. Remember, she was heading out of Jerusalem, going, she was heading out of Sodom, going where she was supposed to go, out of Gomorrah. She was going where, like, she was escaping the judgment that they, she was like this. And what happened? She was like, but maybe. That was my best pillar of salt impersonation. (laughs) It's pretty bad, I know. No disrespect towards any Old Testament hero. That's what happened. Like when Jesus is saying to his disciples, on that day, Your possessions and your memories and your longing for the good old days 
are to be let go of because my, my presence is more important than them all. And we know theologically his presence brings life. His presence brings righteousness. His presence brings hope. His presence eliminates all pain. His presence wipes away every tear. His presence rights every wrong. His presence eliminates evil. His pre Can we just keep going? Like his presence takes care of everything. Why would we want to hold on to anything? You know what I mean? So this is what he's telling his disciples. He goes on and he says in verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken away and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken away and the other left. Verse 36, wait, your Bible probably doesn't have verse 36. Verse 37, I'll explain in a moment. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's get to 36 real quick. How many of your Bibles have verse 36? A few. How many of your Bibles do not have verse 36? How many of you are confused at this point? So here's the deal. Remember earlier when I talked about translations in your midst and within you? Here's what happened. Those Bibles that have verse 36 were probably translations that were based on later manuscripts. Later meaning, or re more recent, it's hard. Recent discoveries usually mean older manuscripts, okay? So when I say those translations that do have verse 36 were probably connected to later manuscripts <laughs> that were uh, based on older documents, or I mean younger documents, are you with me? So simply, here's what theologians believe, here's what scholars believe. Verse 36 was probably added by scribes later to harmonize the book of Matthew with them. Like Matthew speaks of two men are out in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. There's nothing going on here. It doesn't change the meaning of the passage. All we know is this. Later discoveries in earlier manuscripts didn't have verse 36, so it was taken out in some translations. Does that make sense? All the work is being done to try to get it to as close to the original as you can. And as time goes on, they discover more and more documents, many of which are older or closer to the time of Jesus, and adjustments are made. It doesn't change God's heart. It doesn't change who God is. It doesn't even change the thrust of the passage. The point is still the same. When Jesus comes, he's bringing justice with him. Now, what I mean by justice is the process of rewarding and judging based on an individual's belief. When Jesus comes, according to these last few verses, one will be taken, one will be left. The disciples are like, where? He says, where the corpses are. They're the vultures. <laughs> he kind of is like, you'll know. <laughs> right? But the point is this. When Jesus comes for the second time, justice comes with him. And what that means is this. All of those things that I just mentioned, no more wrongs, no more tears, no more pains, no more sicknesses, no more heartaches, no more hurts. He's going to come and right every wrong. He's going to come and make right every wrong. And he's going to do so in two ways. Number one, he's going to bless and usher into the reality of the kingdom those who have chosen to believe in him. Yes? And those who have had an ongoing, never-ending refusal to accept the reality of who he is, rejection of him will be judged. 
Now, I don't know about you, but we live in a time and an age right now, and I'm so glad that this, this was written way before 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023, probably 2024, 2025, because I don't see things changing. But I'm glad that this was written way before that, because theologically we know that Jesus isn't worried about being fair. He's concerned with making things right. And he's never done anything wrong, ever. He always has been, is, and always will be perfect in all that he does, including bringing justice to the world. We have a problem with it when we look at it and we go, well, geez, that's kind of harsh. I mean, how can he know that the ones that are getting blessed with presence into the kingdom, how can he know that they're really believers? Because I've seen some believers do some pretty bad things. And how could he know that those bad people are really bad people? Because I've seen some bad people do some really good things. This doesn't seem fair. Let me encourage you. He doesn't care. About what you think is fair or not. Because fair is not the point. The point is perfection. The point is righteousness. The point is something transcendently more important than humans, humanity's insistence that everything be fair, even though we know it never can be. Someone's always on the wrong side of fair. Thankfully, God is transcendent above all of that. And when he comes in his second coming, he comes to bring justice in a right and perfect way. All he asks from us is that we trust him. And I would say this, we have an entire book, as well as church history, as well as individuals' testimonies that declare that he's trustworthy in all that he does. So as I mentioned before, and we're out of time, so hold on. As I mentioned before, the reality of the second coming, which comes with the justice of God, should be motivational for the people of God. It should motivate you and I. Let me walk through it really quickly. I believe it should motivate us spiritually. That is, we should live in such a way that we are quick to turn away from sin and turn towards our Savior. Am I the only one that has a lifelong struggle and propensity to want to sin? Am I the only one? Or do we all share that same struggle? No matter how saved we are, we still, at different times, want to sin. Now, some of you are thinking, no, I don't. Might be a sin. I'm just saying. <laughs> sin of pride. You, you know what I'm saying? And I'm sorry. If you feel set up, I did it on purpose. Like, the reality of a second coming should motivate us spiritually to be closer and closer and closer to Jesus in our walk with God, to just hold, to turn away from sin all the more and turn towards our Savior all the more. That's what it should motivate within us. He didn't communicate these things so that we would all sit back and go, oh, no, what do we do? I don't know. In the meantime, it's been a while, so I'm going to, right? That's not what he wanted. What he wanted for us is to see, wait, there's a time frame at work, and he knows the time frame, and he's at work. We might as well cooperate with him along the way. And part of the problem with sin, part of the problem with sin is it removes our ability to cooperate with the plans of God. And there are bigger things going on than our own personal satisfactions. Amen? Salvation is at stake. 
I think it should motivate us spiritually. I think it should also motivate us emotionally. In the midst of what can seem like a hopeless time, we can always have hope because he's coming back. And because he's coming back, we can believe that this too shall pass. Whatever this too is, that's weighing us, worrying us, causing us anxiety, stress, frustration, or whatever other kind of emotion it is, the reality that he's coming again and making all things just and right again should motivate us to have hope. Why? Because we can know that whatever it is, it's not going to be forever. Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, but what if it lasts till my very last day? Okay, I, that's still not forever. According to the, the Bible, we, be, 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 whoo, we believe in an eternity beyond the grave. We believe that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord forever. And at that moment, whatever it is that needs to pass will pass away with us. I was going to say with you and it felt harsh. So with us. You see what I mean? Like this too shall pass. It should be something that motivates us emotionally to not give up and continue to have hope. Because it ain't over yet. No matter how hard it looks or how hard it feels. I think it should also motivate us relationally. We should live in such a way as to make sure that our lives are both an explanation of and an example of God's great love. Because just as he desires that none should perish, neither, or so should we. So that means this. The stranger and the neighbor, the loved one and the friend, the family member and the, I'm going to go back. It's called a callback. Crazy uncle, strange aunt. No matter who it is that we have relationship with, we should relate to them in such a way that desires for God's love to be real and genuine in their lives. We should relate in such a way that the most important issue is not how we're doing in our relationship, but how they are doing in their relationship. That's the most important thing. So as we relate to believers, our relationship with them should be one that encourages them towards a closer and closer walk with Jesus. As we relate to non-believers, our relationship, did you hear that? We should be related to non-believers. We should have relationships in our lives where we have an opportunity by the way we live and the things that we say to proclaim the gospel so that they don't have to die in their sins. It's not God's heart for them. Now they may choose it, but let's make sure we're giving them all the information we can about who he is. You see, the second coming of Jesus and the justice that he brings, blessing and judgment, should motivate us to move anyone and everyone according to God's spirit and God working through our lives to that place of blessing. That's what the second coming should do. Finally, and when I say finally, I mean we're almost done. Finally, practically, it should be a motivation practically in the midst of a world that continually tempts us to live like today is all there is. We should, be, we should refuse to be enslaved by his stuff, captivated by its calling or wowed by its ways. The reality that there is coming a day when all of this stuff goes away should motivate us to not be so tightly related to this world and its ways that we can't get untangled. 
It's spoken of in other parts of Scripture this way. In the book of Hebrews, since we're looking to Jesus, let's do so and let go of any and every sin that so easily entangles us. The reality of the second coming should motivate us practically to live like there is a tomorrow and not that today's the only day we have. There's got to be more than just eating, drinking, and marrying and by that I mean happiness, get married. I didn't mean not get married. If you're in love, get married. I don't know why I said that. I mean, I could go off on it theologically, but that'll be another sermon. Why don't you guys stand with me for just a moment? As you do, I'm going to have Emma come forward. She's going to lead us in another song. And while we're getting ready for that, let me explain to you what's going to happen. As she leads us in another song, which, by the way, we're grateful for God's provision of people to lead us in worship, especially Emma. But as she does that, you need to think about a couple of things. Because while she's doing so, some folks are going to pass out the communion elements. For us, that means this opportunity to remember that Jesus took our place on a cross and shed his blood for our forgiveness. And on a regular basis, we eat that little piece of unleavened bread, and we drink that little bit of grape juice, remembering what it is that Jesus has done for us. But as we do that, I suggest this. We should think about how we make sure we're on the right side of these motivations. How do we stay on the right side of where God wants us? How do we stay rightly motivated as it relates to our spirituality, our emotions, our relationships, and the way that we live our lives practically. How do we stay where God wants us to stay on that? I suggest to you, we stay where he wants us to be by keeping our eyes on him. It dawned on me during first service, never thought about it before, but I did an hour ago, that when we remember the reality of the cross, we're remembering that Jesus, even though he could have looked away from us, never took his eyes off of us and willingly suffered and died on our behalf. He even talked to people, individuals, from the cross. The least we could do is keep our eyes on him, and as we keep our eyes on him, we'll be rightly motivated in all of those areas. In the book of Mark, chapter 6, don't worry, we're not doing the third Bible study in the single message. We're just calling something back here. In the book of Mark chapter 6, there's a moment where Jesus walks out onto the water and his disciples are confused, wondering if it's really him. And one of them says, Lord, if it's really you, bid me to come. And Jesus says to Peter, well, come on out. And Peter got out of the boat and he began to walk on the water. I suggest to you getting from here to the return of Christ is going to feel like walking on water because it feels a little overwhelming, slightly impossible, and I'm not even sure how to do it. But the good news of the gospel is, is that it, as, as it relates to getting there, Jesus stands around us, with us, and among us saying, just come on, I'll show you. Take a step. And we know that Peter got out of the boat and he walked on water. But then what happened? He noticed the wind and the waves around him. He took his eyes off of Jesus, looked at all of the circumstances raging around him, and he began to sink. Jesus is calling us, I believe today, to be rightly motivated, to get out of our comfortable boat, be rightly motivated by the reality of his return, and walk through this life in a miraculous way, one in which it draws attention to the glory of who God is and his love. 
But some of us are sinking. Some of us are up to our necks, ears, if you will, almost ready to go under. Why? Because we took our eyes off of him. The key from getting from this day to that day, even if it's later today or tomorrow or the next day, the key for us is to keep our eyes on Jesus. Thank you for listening. For more information about Rogue Valley Christian Church, please visit our website at www.rvchristian.com.